You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. So it was uh, from John chapter 1, 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with the Word. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. From, for from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Hope we're doing well tonight. Mercy View, my name is Trey, um, partner and church planning resident here. Um, excited to get a chance to open God's Word uh, with you. Take a look at this. If you have your Bibles, leave them there in John 1. It's where we're going to camp out this evening. Um, always honored to get a chance to preach, uh, e- even more honored tonight, get a privilege to kick off this series that we're having interrupt our series through Romans as we look to Resurrection Sunday um, and as we take the time to uh, gaze and remember the death of Jesus and celebrate the resurrection. And, and what we're going to do the next few weeks is we're going to uh, just look deeply at the second person of the Trinity in his incarnation, in his life, his death, resurrection, to life and glory as well. So um, we, we want to together in this series do what John the Baptist said on the banks of the Jordan River about 2,000 years ago when he said, uh, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, And since that's not a word that we really use all that often, it's kind of flowery language, I thought maybe it'd be a good idea to define what it means to behold something. I don't think anybody's walking into the office going, behold, I'm here, right? Nobody's really doing that. Um, So I'm going to just kind of give us a little bit of a definition and maybe put it into some perspective. Um, The word behold means to observe something or a person, specifically something remarkable or impressive, and so like in context for us, nobody's driving down Riverside um, at 71st Street and beholding Turkey Mountain, right? You just kind of look at it, 
know that there's way too many people up there. If you walk up there, it's going to just be overcrowded, and you're going to sweat and not do a whole lot, right? Nobody's beholding Turkey Mountain. Um, as awesome as uh, Lake, uh, uh, Grand Lake might be, as awesome as Lake Eufaula might be, um, nobody's beholding those lakes. They're just looking at it. You're gazing at it. But if we were to, for example, go to the Rockies, haven't been, but uh, I, I hear it's, it's pretty majestic and, and there's something to behold. I have been to South America and flown into the city of Quito in Ecuador, which is situated in the middle of the Andes. And as we were flying into the city, I can tell you, I looked out the window and I saw this valley that was full of just all of this green vegetation and it took my breath away. Like situated in the middle of these mountains with snow-capped volcanoes, which that's pretty cool right? It, it, it was stunning. It was marvelous. Or, or I've been to the Pacific, I've been to the Atlantic, I, I've been to the Gulf of Mexico, and each one of those places that I've been, let me tell you, a sunset or a sunrise over the ocean is something that takes your breath away. These are things that you behold. They're things that you can just tell without a doubt that they're bigger than you, that they're stronger than you, and they're full of beauty, and they're full of wonder. Why do massive mountain ranges, why does the ocean rise to the rank of being remarkable and impressive so that we can behold them when we see them? It's because they're both immensely beautiful and awe-inducing, yet incredibly powerful and dangerous. Like a loud noise at the wrong place on a snow-filled mountain can cause an avalanche that sends snow thousands of feet down at breakneck speeds and bury you feet underneath. Now, if you're just walking in the wrong spot in the ocean, there is a chance that there might be a riptide somewhere just a little bit too far out, and, and it could grab you and take you out to sea. Now, these things aren't super common, but they happen, and they show you and remind you of the fact that there is something about these things that are so beautiful and so marvelous, and something that we can look at and behold, yet at the same time, there's this danger that's involved in it. And so as we begin to look at Jesus, and as we begin to take our eyes and, and turn them toward the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our substitute and redeemer, the one full of grace and truth, and we don't just casually look at Jesus the way we drive past Turkey Mountain. No, we lift up our eyes and we behold the beauty and the majesty and we tremble at the power and the danger that he possesses. That's what our text this evening as we consider the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, the Son in flesh, conveys. We see in the Word this utter beauty and majesty and at the same time this power and fury and we see the God of the universe willing to humble himself and take on this human form. Like the same feeble and weak and frail form that you and I inhabit so that he could be near to us. And as we behold his beauty, his power, his humility, what we're doing is we're gazing at the greatest hope of life imaginable. And that's what I want us to do tonight. So... 
together as we look at this passage, can we behold the Word? First, I want us to behold the Word in power and majesty. Look down again at verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. Now, rather than starting where uh, some of the other gospel writers started, like Luke starts with the birth of Jesus, which seems like the place that you would start when you're talking about uh, God coming in the flesh, right? And Matthew, he, he goes to the genealogy and he points uh, from Adam to Joseph where Jesus comes in along the trail. And, and John comes into this and, and he's writing a bit later. And he's wanting to point us to something a little bit different. And so he doesn't start in either of those places. Now, he doesn't start with the angel coming and speaking to Mary. He, he doesn't start even with Abraham or with Adam. John takes us further back. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to give us this scope, the, the sheer scope of this majesty and power that is contained in Jesus. And so John says, in the beginning was the Word. And in doing so, he's intentionally drawing our attention to another place in Scripture that we've seen that same kind of opening line. His readers then would have been familiar with it, the Jewish readers at least. It's how the entire Bible starts. It's, it's the first words that Moses has in the Pentateuch, in Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God. And so what John is doing is he begins the story about the life and the ministry of Jesus is he is placing the beginning of that story before the beginning of everything that we know. The beginning of all things. At the dawn of creation, there was the Word. Now I don't know that for our purposes tonight we really need to dive into all the nuance of, of what he's saying here when he says the word like that's Jesus right that's who he's talking about but I think it's important to understand there's there's more to it than just him giving a nickname to Jesus uh, the, the word that is used in the original there is the word logos and, and we could get bogged down for a long time trying to explain uh, and, and piece together what John means about that why he chose this term why he's using it but I think that a short explanation probably will suffice. You guys can say amen to that if you want. Um, whether Jew or Greek, whether you were, if you were living in the first century, you were going to have some kind of understanding of this phrase, uh, uh, the Logos. And John's use of, of Logos, uh, he is, is using this to kind of point to who Jesus is, and he's drawing from uh, Greek philosophy that had also been drawn on by some Jewish historians. And so um, it's carrying this significance with it. And he's building this cake case that's going to flip kind of the, the modern, uh, the, the understanding they had in that day on its head. And so for the Greeks, this term, it found its root in the philosophers, uh, specifically in the Stoics, who talked about the Logos as this principle at work in the cosmos to bring order from the chaos. So everything in life is full of chaos, and any place that we see order, we see civilization, we see rationality, that's the logos at work. So whether it's in nature or in morality or in government, it's the logos, it's sound reason and logic that's been at work in the laws of nature, embedded in the laws of nature, that's undergirding all of life that finds itself to be rational and ordered. 
And then for many Jews in the first century, they would have been uh, accustomed to, to hearing about the Logos because there was a guy named Philo about 40, 50 years before Jesus who uh, took the Greek philosophy of the Logos and he harmonized it with the Jewish theology of the day. And he started to kind of give this picture of where he was saying that there is this divine word of the Lord that we see as the active agent of God in the world because for the Jews and for the Greeks in this day, God was transcendent and other. He was away from his creation and he had to have something working on his behalf with his people, with the world. And so John comes in and he begins to say some things that are going to flip the script on that a bit. He says, in the beginning was the Word, was the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Rather than an impersonal force working from a totally transcendent God that has nothing to do with His creation, do you hear what John says? He takes this phrase and this concept that the people would have been used to, and he says, there is something about God's power and active work in the world that is not only actively working to order all things, to bring order out of chaos, not only working to enact God's will in the world, there is something about the Logos that actually has personhood and is personified. He says that person is Jesus. He's going to get down there in just a moment. He, he's pointing to the fact that what is actually the active agent in the world is not some impersonal force, but is the personal God himself. I so said the first thing we needed to behold tonight was the word in power and majesty. And I don't know that you can get more majestic or more powerful than this right here that John is pointing us to before the beginning began. And he's saying that the word Jesus already was. It doesn't really matter tonight. Uh, if, if you've heard that before, maybe you're like, yeah, hey, dude, I've read this like a few times. I've been in church. Like uh, maybe you've heard somebody explain some of this. But let's, let's look at this tonight. All things, everything was made through Jesus. Every grand thing that you will ever behold on this planet, every marvel of the universe, it's been created by Him. Now let's forget about the Rockies or the Pacific Ocean for a minute and just think about the kind of panoramic shots that you can see if you get online and look at what the Mars rover's sending back. Like one, we have a robot on another planet taking pictures, right? And the pictures that it's taking are stunning. Like the planet itself is kind of boring and lifeless. But every now and then it'll take that camera and it'll point it up to the sky. And I've been out in places where there's no light pollution and you can see the sky and it's, it's gorgeous. Man, this is something else. And then there's orbiting around this planet these telescopes that are peering off into space and they're sending back these pictures of these just stunning, beautiful things out in the cosmos. And as far as we know, have zero purpose whatsoever except to point to the majesty and the wonder of God, 
of Jesus who created all of it. As we consider that and as we think about that, the fact that he made it, that this is his, at the same time, John wants to draw our attention to something that's even more spectacular and more amazing. And it's that the one who created that and sustains that by the very power of his will right now, according to Paul in Colossians 1, he came near to us. We're going to skip down to verse 14. This is the second thing we need to see tonight. I know we're skipping over a lot, so every type A person in the room just tensed up a little bit. Just take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. We're going to come back. We're going to cover that. However, I think we need to see these two things right next to one another. We don't need to skip. Uh, we need to skip ahead and, and see this because we've we got to get the scope of power and majesty of the Word, and then we absolutely need to see what verse 14 says. He says, And the Word created all things, was before all things, who in everything all things hold together, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And consider for a moment on the one hand, you have the Word that's with God and was God. Through Him everything that exists, that was made, it's all His. And on the other hand, this Word became flesh. He became like us. And not only that, He lived among us. This God of the universe who holds everything together by the power of His will, He took on flesh. Like we are flesh. You and I are flesh. Like I woke up this morning and I was sore from sleeping. Like I'm weak and I'm frail. It doesn't matter how healthy you are. It doesn't matter how well put together you are. How sharp your mind is. Because you're flesh, you are weak and frail. And Jesus became like you. The Word that was with God and was God in all eternity past, he, he doesn't have to stave off aging with leafy greens and Pilates like He's eternal. And He's ageless. And yet, this eternal Word that has the power to hold everything together by the sheer force of His will, He came into the world as powerless as any of us. And He died in humiliation and weakness. Like eternally filled with joy and delight in the communion that he has with the Father and the Spirit in all of eternity past. Yet he took on flesh and like you and I, again and again he finds himself in these spots of deep loneliness and sadness as he endures the brokenness of the world. Like it's something to marvel at that he became like us and dwelt among us. You see, the beauty of the incarnation is not just in his becoming like us, but in that, in his desire to dwell with us, to live among people like you and me. Those who had rebelled against him, those who, as we look back here in a moment at the earlier passages, those who reject him, 
Even though he comes to them as his own, they reject him. Yet he was willing to come and do it and to live among us. Like he didn't just phone it in. Like I'm sure that the one who created the universe could have found some way to just kind of plant himself in the world. Like in, in, in a way that everyone could see him. That he could still teach, that he could still heal, that he could do all of these things that, that people want to point to that Jesus did. Now he could have had some kind of cosmic Zoom call with the earth and he didn't do it. He came and he lived among us embodied. Jesus took on flesh. Without the incarnation, which literally means in flesh, we, we aren't able to see the depth of God's heart for us. Because Jesus took on flesh, because as we gaze at the word and we see that he not only was with God in the beginning, but that he was also with us in time and space, we're able to see the depth of God's love for us, his heart for us. If we don't have the incarnation, our understanding of God is so greatly diminished. I love how Dane Ortland frames it in Gentle and Lowly. Plug for the books that John's talking about. There's a stack of them out there. If you haven't read it, grab it. If you have, get it and give it to a friend. He says, The richness of divine mercy becomes real to us not only when we see how depraved we naturally are, but also when we see that the river of mercy flowing out of God's heart took shape as man. Perhaps the notion of heavenly mercy seems abstract. But what if mercy became something we could see, hear, and touch? That's what happened in the incarnation. See, in Christ, the mercy of God became something that we could see, we could hear, we could touch. Think of the implication of this in, in the world that we live in right now. And for the past two years, how so much of life has gotten pushed into the digital space, gotten pushed online. How so much of our life has uh, existed in this kind of disconnection from one another. I don't know if you felt that in the first year when we like, had to be meeting outside or we were meeting on Zoom completely. Like, like There was something missing. It was because we were made to be embodied. Imagine that all of us at some point over the last two years, we felt just how empty and sterile that life and work and play is online. Because we weren't made for a digital existence. We weren't made to live isolated and alone by a transcendent, and left alone by a transcendent God. No, we have a God who, yes, transcends all of creation, who is outside of time, yet willingly condescends, comes into time and space to be with us. And Dane hit the nail on the head. In order to show his mercy, his love, his grace, God came to you and he came to me. He lived as one of us. He died as one of us. And that tells us something about the value that he places on physical embodied presence in our lives. Like just consider for a moment what this disembodied existence that our culture's been living in for the last decade. Like it wasn't just COVID that started it. COVID just spread this up. 
This disembodied existence where everything about your life that, that you really show to anyone is put online? Like all of it's a facade, really. Like we know that. Like the data on this stuff? Like how it's driving us into depression and anxiety, how it's leading to despair and confusion? Like it's the result of living disembodied, of living disconnected from other people, specifically as the people of God living disconnected from one another. You see, the incarnation for the believer, it comes in as a corrective to so much of what's plaguing us right now. It's the implications of the incarnation that lead Paul to spell out the Christian life the way that he does in Romans 12. But unless you are living incarnationally, you cannot rejoice with people as they rejoice. But liking a post on Facebook is not rejoicing with someone. You can't weep with those who weep if you're not just able to sit in their presence. I don't know, I don't know how much suffering you've experienced in your life. I, I, I've unfortunately had to, had to walk through death of several close family members. And one thing that I, I can tell you from that is that people always ask what they can do and the number one thing that you can do is just be there. But there's not anything that you can say there's not really anything that you can do, but you can be there. And that does something. Because we were made for presence. As the people of God, God put us together in his body to be a living representation of his presence that came to this earth. If the creator of the universe found it necessary to step into an embodied existence, a physical existence, so that he could be near to us, so that he could sympathize with us, so that we could genuinely know him, then the incarnation carries these massive implications for the rest of the way that we live our lives. And so thus far tonight, we, we've taken a 30,000 foot view of Jesus' majesty and power as the eternal word from eternity past. We briefly looked at the humility of the word to take on human flesh, bringing comfort and the nearness of God to us. But what do we do with it? Like, like what do we do with this? What does it mean for us to behold Jesus? What's, what are the implications for you and I? How does it not just stay in the realm of the abstract, but actually get pressed down into and flow out of our day-to-day -day lives? That's what I want us to wrap up our time looking at. Um, the third thing we need to do tonight is behold the Word and live. And there's a scholar that I, I read as I was studying on this named F.F. F. Bruce, and he wrote a commentary on John. Uh, and he says this about the section that we've read tonight, the prologue. It says, the book of John as a whole spells out the message of the prologue. That in the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, the glory of God was uniquely and perfectly disclosed. Nevertheless, in what it says about the word, the prologue shows us the perspective from which the gospel as a whole has to be understood. All that is recorded from the banks of the Jordan to the resurrection appearances shows how the eternal word of God became flesh so that men and women might believe in him and live. The section that we're reading in John was written 
so that as we read the rest of the book, we'd remember to look back and behold the majesty and power of Jesus. So as we came across these stories about Jesus who is the Word of God in flesh, reaching down into the dirt, being with people, we would see the heart of God to come and take on flesh. And when we see that, and we remember how glorious, how majestic, how wonderful He is, yet we get a picture of this humility, we would look and we would believe and we would live. Like so much of what John says here, even what he says in 1 John, it revolves around this idea of belonging or, or seeing and be, beholding or, or seeing and believing. Like I know that faith is the evidence of seeing things unseen and, and that seeing isn't always believing, but John is pointing us to a spiritual reality that we have to have spiritual sight, spiritual eyes to see and believe that Jesus is the place that we find life in. Now look at verse 3. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then down in verse 9 he says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, and gave, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, what beholding Jesus leads to is finding life, because Jesus is the light that dispels the darkness. This is what theologians call illumination, the work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to go from spiritual blindness to sight. And what John is pointing us to, and what he's pointing out to us, is that Jesus is the light that shines into the dark corners of our heart, where sin is hiding because sin hides and camps out in darkness. And he's letting us see it. He's showing us who we really are. And in doing so, he's showing us who he really is. And he's saying, I want you to pull that out. And I want you to bring it to me. And I want you to find life. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is giving us a picture of who God is in himself. And what do we see about Jesus throughout this book? What we see is that Jesus comes near to the broken and to the lowly, to those who are steeped in sin. I just consider his conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria. Like she already had three strikes against her when he showed up. And he sat with her and he spoke with her and he pointed her to himself. And he shined a light into the darkness of her heart. And she was able to see, and she got eyes to see, and as she did, what happened? And she came alive. She came alive, and she went back to her town, and everyone that was there, and they got to see the light shine on their city. But Jesus' disciples didn't even want to be there. And he goes and he brings life to them. He goes and he preaches life to them, and he shines a light. 
You see, because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Paul says in Colossians 1, we're able to know what God is like. And if we see Jesus, we see God. We're able to see his heart. We're able to see more clearly his holiness and his wrath against sin. So how do we practically day-to-day behold Jesus and how does doing that affect our lives? How do we behold him in power and majesty and humility? How do we do that and find life? There, there's three things real quick, specifically from the opening of 1 John, that really connect here to what John says in John 1 that I think give us some parallel. The first thing we've got to do is we've got to look at his word. Like the, the first thing that we need to do, and I know it might sound simple, if, if we want to behold the power and the majesty of God in the flesh, we need to open our Bibles and we need to peer at Scripture and see Jesus. If you want to have a super practical way to behold Jesus, to gaze on the beauty and majesty of the Lamb that was slain, to know the heart of God, to experience His presence, open your Bible. That's what John implies as he starts his letter in 1 John. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which our eyes have beheld, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He says, we've seen it. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal word of life. He says, that's what we've seen, we've heard, we proclaim with you, to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and with the Father and with Jesus Christ. He's saying, listen, I've sat down and I've wrote this letter for you because I've seen Jesus, I've heard him speak, I've watched him heal, I've known that he's God in the flesh, and I know you haven't had a chance to do that, but you can trust me. I've seen him. I've seen him resurrected. I've watched him fulfill all of the law, all of the prophets, and I want you to know about it. Because if you know about it, and if you see it, and if you believe it, then you can have friendship and fellowship with him. Intimate communion with him, with the Father, and with the Son, with one another. And Jesus points us to the same thing too. It's not just the New Testament that shows us Jesus. You remember the story about Jesus walking on, the the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus and they're talking about what had happened and they're moping because Jesus had died and they'd heard that he'd been raised from the dead and and Jesus shows up, they don't recognize it's him and he's like, what's up guys? And he's like, listen, have you not heard what happened? Like they killed Jesus and and people said he rose from the dead but he didn't really rise, we don't know. He says, how long are your hearts going to be hard? And what Luke records is that uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Because from beginning to the end of the book, it's about Jesus. And so if you want to gaze on the majesty and the power and the wonder of the God who would become man, open the word. Second thing, if you're going to behold Jesus, then you're going to have to take a deep look at your own sinful and broken heart. Like, if you're going to see Jesus, you have to let the light shine. And if it does that, it's going to expose sin. And you're just going to have to take a look at it. In our main text tonight and in 1 John 1, he presses in on the fact that Jesus is the true light. And that shines into the darkness and it overcomes it. 
Sin hides and grows in darkness, and unless we're willing to be honest with ourselves, with others, with Jesus about sin, where we find it, then we're not going to be able to walk in the light. We'll be like people that he mentions in John 3.19 who've seen the light, who've had it shine on them, and they reject it because rather than loving the light, they love the darkness. We have to be honest about our sin, which is why so often you'll hear us up here in the, the liturgy read during our confession of sin, 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because if we bring it out into the light, the true light, the darkness can't overcome it. You can't behold much of anything when you're in darkness. You can't see things if you're in darkness. But if you'll let Jesus shine a light on your sin and bring it out of the shadows, listen, you'll find life. And he won't shrink back from you. It's in those darkest places of your soul that his light shines the brightest. And so be honest about your sin and gaze on his beauty and behold how near he is to you in that moment. This is the last thing, and this is where we're going to wrap up tonight. If you want to behold Jesus, you do that in relationship with other people who also have their gaze fixed on him. If you look back over 1 John, you'll see him mention fellowship three times in seven verses. And two of those times, they have to do with the kind of fellowship that we have with one another. But that idea of fellowship that John's getting at, that he's pointing to, is that we are in this thing together. We're sharing in this together so we can rejoice with those who rejoice, so we can weep with those who weep. And this is why we come together around the table and we eat a meal and we drink good wine and we share rich food and we open our homes and our hearts to one another. Like it's, not just, it's not just what we do in this hour and a half on a Sunday morning, or Sunday evening, sorry. But yeah, we do this every single week, and this is important, but it's what happens in between these Sunday gatherings, when we're gathering in our gospel communities, when we're with our D group, when we're pressing into life. When we try to do this on our own, and we're not able to see Jesus as he is. We can't see Jesus in all of the way that he wants us to see him if we don't see him in the lives of his body around us. And so we gather and we do this and we get together embodied because that's what Jesus did for us. If you want to behold Jesus, you behold Jesus by being together with his people where his body, body is gathered, working together toward the common cause of making much of him. And what would happen in our lives if we got our eyes fixed on Jesus? Let's pray.